passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, where we're picking up right where we left off a couple weeks ago. So if you have a Bible, invite you to open up to that passage this morning. And as you're doing so, I want you to just consider a question. Um, and that question is, is simply this. What is the most important thing that a pastor can do for the church they serve? What is the most important thing that a pastor can do for the church that they serve? And, and there's probably countless ways to answer this question, aren't there? Uh, but, but I'm just struck by the way that Robert Murray McShane, he was a, a pastor in the early 1800s, and, and um, he actually died at the age of, I think, 29. Um, he, he answered this in a very unique, uh, powerful way. He said, my people's greatest need is not Bible knowledge. It's not good leadership skills. It's, it's not talent. McShane says something completely different. He says, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. That's a really powerful statement, isn't it? It's a really, really striking one. Uh, it's just incredibly important for us uh, today. Honestly, in, in every day and age. But today we live in, in a, a day where it seems like pastoral failure is, is increasingly common and in, in, McShane says that a pastor should be someone who is concerned not just with teaching people more about God, but actually he should be increasingly reflecting God to his people. Now, why is that so important? Well, I think it's so important because that's the chief call, not just a, of being a pastor, but that's really the chief call of, of any Christian's life. Everyone who is a Christian is called to increasingly reflect Jesus, increasingly to be more and more like Jesus. J.C. Ryle, he's a, another pastor from the 1800s. He puts it this way. He says, we, all of us who are Christians, we must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. You see, to be, be a Christian is to become more like Jesus. But of course, the question is, well, how, how exactly do we do that? And that's what Paul is addressing in this passage this morning. We're going to take this passage, verses 12 through 18. We're going to break it apart into three sections. But before we jump into God's word, let's take a moment, pause, and uh, take some time to just pray for God's blessing to be with us. Would you pray with me? Father, as, as we um, consider this passage, uh, we first and foremost just say thank you uh, that you hear us. And as we approach your word this morning, we ask that you would make it true of us, that we would be a people that increasingly reflect Jesus, that we would be people, uh, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, co-workers, neighbors, friends, people, whatever uh, our unique calling in life is, God, that you would help us to increasingly reflect you with our lives. And God, we ask that you would send your spirit to enable us to do just that, to work out our salvation, as this text says, and that we would do it for your good pleasure. Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear what you would have us hear and see from this passage this morning. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's go ahead and jump into our passage. We're going to start in uh, verse 12, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. 
and 13. We're going to look at those two verses here at the beginning. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a passage that a lot of times uh, we can see and we can say, well, that's, that's a little confusing for me, especially in our modern day context. We rightly emphasize the importance of salvation as a gift of grace, not something that we can earn or merit on our own. So the idea of working can sometimes cause us to pause and say, okay, what, what exactly is Paul saying here? Is he contradicting what the rest of the Bible says? Well, the answer to that is, is to just read our, our passage in context. Notice how verse 12 starts. Verse 12 starts with this word, therefore. And as I've said before, and I picked it up from a pastor in Chicago when we lived there, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? And that's what we have to do here. We have to understand the context. Why is a therefore here? What what do we have to, to look at to understand this passage? And the answer to that question is actually rooted in what takes place right before it. In, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. 5 through 11, it, it, Paul is describing what, what Jesus' mindset, his heart attitude was like in the story of salvation. When he comes to earth and when he lives his perfect life and when he goes to the cross, what was Jesus' heart posture during that time? And then, if we go before that, verses 1 through 4, Paul is saying, hey, I want you to have that same sort of mindset. I want you to to think this way just like Jesus did when he came to earth. And of course, the question, well, what was Jesus thinking about? What what was his heart posture during his time? It was one of of self-denial. It was a time of uh, a a posture of self-sacrifice, of of putting others first. And Paul is saying, hey, I want you as the church in Philippi, and by extension us today, I want us to be a people who put others first, and we should be actively pursuing this sort of mindset. But notice in verse 12 what he says before he gets to this, work out your salvation. He, he says something else. He says this, you have always obeyed, not only when I have been with you, but, but now even more when I've been gone from you. And what's the key word in that phrase? It's, it's obeyed. It's, it's obedience that is in view here. That's what Paul is talking about when he says to, to work out our salvation. He's saying, hey, we're, we just want to be an obedient people. I want you to be people who, who obey the ethical commands of the gospel, just like Jesus did. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us that Jesus' entire life, he was obedient to the will and the plan of his Father. And we also should pursue that same sort of obedience. But this obedience isn't something that is meant to to earn our salvation, but rather is instead the intended result of our salvation. Remember what Paul is saying, what he's praying for at the beginning of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, he says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's chief concern, the the primary thing that he's praying for the church in Philippi is simply this, that they would grow in love, that they would be better at loving one another, and that that would result in fruit. 
that they would bear fruit with their lives, that they would be a fruitful people. And Paul's concern is, is really just God's concern that the, the church in Philippi would be a fruitful church, that as time goes on and on and on, they would become more and more and more like Jesus. And that's simply all that Paul means when he says, work out your salvation. Now, remember how the church in Philippi started. It started by Paul. He was, he was traveling in Macedonia, and he stops in Philippi about 10 years before he writes this letter. And his time with him is short, maybe only a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months at the most. But in the midst of that time, he is blown away by their commitment to the gospel, their faithful living. In fact, later on, just a few verses or chapters later, at the end of Philippians, Paul is writing to this church and he says, hey, I remember how you treated me 10 years ago when I was kicked out of Philippi. I went to Thessalonica and you were the only church that took care of me. You are the only ones who were concerned about my well-being in that time. And you've continued to do it over and over and over. From the very beginning, guys, you have been a church that has taken this call to be like Jesus very seriously. And you've expressed that in very sacrificial ways. Now, the question that we might have is, why, why exactly does that matter here? Well, notice that what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you know, up to this point, church, you've been exceedingly faithful. You've done an excellent job at at bearing fruit, at at obeying the commands of the gospel. That's what he means when he says, now, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. This is as you've always obeyed. This is something that they have always done. But what he's saying is, you've taken the call of the gospel very seriously to this point don't give up now. That's a really important word for all of us as well, isn't it? To not give up in pursuing obedience in our lives. It seems like the longer that we are Christians, the more ups and downs our lives have. There are some seasons where we're just passionately pursuing this chance to become more like Jesus, and then there are other seasons where just, just not so much. And if we're not careful, there's this mindset that can creep into our hearts, and oftentimes It's an unconscious one that says, hey, you know what? As I look back at my life, if I look at where where I was when Jesus saved me and where I I am today, I've I've made a lot of progress. I've become a whole lot more like Jesus than I once was. And we can get to this point where if we're not careful, we can begin to say, you know what? I've made a lot of progress. And that's a good thing. But then we begin to rest on past obedience as opposed to pursuing present obedience obedience. And and Paul writes to address that temptation. He says, hey, you've always been concerned with being faithful to Jesus, and I'm so thankful for that. Don't stop now. We we can't coast in in the path of obedience. It's an active calling. It's not something that is, is passive. And each and every day for us is a new opportunity to pursue obedience in the path of Jesus. So don't stop now. Now notice how Paul describes what our heart posture should be during this time. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Obedience must be humble. It, it, it must stand in reverent awe of who Jesus is and, and the, the destruction that he has saved us from. Working out our salvation must be done with fear and trembling because it means that we have to take our sin very seriously because our sin is, the, is that which made the death of Christ necessary. 
And so working out our salvation has to be done. This pursuit of holiness has to be done with reverent awe of who God is. It means that we, we see the awfulness of our sin and we strive to do something about it. We, we make it a priority in our lives to just evict sin from our lives, not, not just to make it a roommate. And to not just say, hey, you know what, I've gotten rid of the big sins in my lives, and there are these smaller ones that I'm still dealing with, but, but that's okay, I'm never going to be perfect, and Jesus will save me from those anyway. We make it a priority in our lives to evict sin from our lives, because our God is holy, and he calls us to be holy, and the path of obedience is one that must be done humbly. You see, obedience to Jesus, it, it, it takes effort from us, and that effort doesn't come within each and every one of us. Verse 13 makes that very clear. Even though, verse 12, it says, like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does he say in verse 13? It says, for God is the one who works within you. God is the one who empowers us through his spirit in order to, to strive for this obedience. The pursuit of obedience trying to obey what the, what the Bible tells us to do without communion with God, the, who the Bible is about, is not the pursuit of holiness. It's, it's just simply behavior modification. It's just changing the way we live, putting a filter on our lives rather than actually being obedient to the call of the gospel. Obedience recognizes that it is God who is at work in us. And we might be saying, well, how... How exactly does that work? Well, it's not as though God does his part, and we do our part, and, and maybe the split is, is 90% God and, and 10% Jordan, or, or maybe it's 95 and, and 5, or, or 99 and, and 1. Or that, there's not a sense of cooperation here. It's instead a sense of one is the root and one is the fruit. The root of our spiritual growth is God at work within each and every one of us. God is the one who saves us without our own ability, without us contributing anything to our salvation, without, with the exception of maybe the sin that made it necessary to be saved in the first place. God is the one whose spirit enables us to grow, and that's the root of our spiritual growth, of becoming more and more like Jesus. But there's also a fruit and that fruit is this grace-fueled effort, this intentional decision-making that we say, you know what, I am faced with two options here. I can choose this, which would not honor Jesus, or I'm, I'm faced with this, which would honor Jesus. And it'd be hard to choose this one and not this one, but because I want to work out my salvation in fear and trembling, I am going to make the hard decision to follow him today. And what's the purpose of all this? Well, that's what Paul gives us at the end of verse 13. The end of verse 13 makes it very clear. God empowers us to grow in holiness for his good pleasure. God is pleased and God, God is glorified when we grow in holiness. And, and honestly, could there be a better motivator for us to, to desire to work out our salvation than to live a life that God is, looks at and says, well done, I am pleased with how you are living your life. I love the, the language, that this, the, the imagery that this phrase gives to us. It's, um, it, it's one that's just so affectionate. That, that God receives delight. He is pleased when we pursue holiness. The fact that our, our spiritual growth pleases God, it breaks down any sort of misguided understanding we might have of God, that he's just some 
curmudgeon who's he's never satisfied with us, that even though our best efforts are, uh, we're shooting, shooting to, to please him, he's never satisfied because it's not perfect. And he only demands perfection. No, this is a picture of a God who, though he does demand perfection, also delights when his children are making progress and the, and the victories over temptation in our lives. He's cheering us on. He comes alongside us and says to us, I know you can't do this on, my, on your own, and so I'm going to give you my spirit so that you have the power and have the strength in order to become more and more like my son. And doesn't that just make the, the prospect of, of holiness a little less daunting, a little, little less troubling or challenging for us. Yes, it must be done with, with fear and trembling, but also we see that the God who asks us to pursue holiness is he's also pleased with our little victories. He's pleased with the day today. That's why these, these first two verses, I, I think we can just sum it up with this charge. Strive for obedience for God's glory and, and pleasure. Strive for obedience for God's glory and pleasure. This isn't a, a charge that's a divorce from, from any sort of fatherly affection from God. It's, it's rooted in God's love for us. It's saturated in who God is. And yes, obedience is hard work. It takes striving. It takes pursuit. It takes chasing after things. But in the end, we see God's glory and pleasure. Let us be a people who strive for holiness, for obedience, so that God receives glory and God is pleased with our lives. If we continue in this passage, the next three verses, 14 through 16, uh, we, we see Paul further explain this call to obedience. Take a look, starting in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now what does Paul have in mind here in verse 12 when he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Well, in a, in a general sense, he's talking about all of life. All of life is the pursuit of this holiness to, to live out the commands of the gospel and yet he specifically has, has one area of life in view. In the context of Philippians 2, he's talking about grumbling and complaining and disputing and arguing. And Paul is basically saying, hey, if you want to pursue a life that looks like Jesus, then it starts right here. It starts with this type of pursuit, the death of this type of mindset. Now, do you see why? The church in Philippi, it's facing hardship, it's facing suffering. We've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. They're increasingly suffering for the gospel, just like Paul is as he is sitting in a Roman prison. Their circumstances are trying. And if there's one thing that I've learned in the year 2020, it's that when things get tough, complaining is a whole lot easier, isn't it? It is so much easier to complain when things are hard, when they are challenging, than it is when, when life is, is going normal and going good for us. And it seems like everywhere we look in this day and age, it doesn't matter if it's social media, the television, the news, even conversations that we have with other people, it, it seems like the default in our culture is to 
complain. And as we've seen in our, our study of the book of Philippians, one of the challenges that, that's facing the church in Philippi is their church unity. That as the, the temperature has increased and their circumstances become more and more difficult, as the stresses go up, there's these cracks that begin to form in the church's foundation and their relationships with one another. And that's why Paul com- commands them to have this same mindset. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He's concerned about humility, putting others before themselves. Now notice what Paul's primary concern is about. It's not just simply the act of grumbling. It's not just simply the act of arguing or complaining. You can remain totally silent. You can follow, in in elementary school, I learned the thumper rule from, I think, from Bambi. If you can't say nothing nice, don't say anything at all, right? Paul, Paul doesn't have that in mind here. You can remain totally silent and still have a complaining heart and a complaining spirit. You can still have a bitter heart Paul is not concerned with that. God is far more concerned with what your heart is like, your character, your heart attitude, than the overflow of your heart and your actions. You can change your actions without changing your heart. But all you're doing is you're just putting a filter on your life and you're letting people see it's something that's not really you. But if you change your heart, if you change the root, it will produce different fruit. And that's what Paul is concerned about here. You see, complaining second nature in our our culture, it seems like it's so prevalent that it it really, I don't know about you, but to me it comes across like as a relatively minor sin. Like if we were to rank different sins and what's the worst and what's the the lowest, to me this idea of complaining, it's something I know I shouldn't do, but but honestly, can God really blame me? Because if you look at my circumstances, if you look at at how those people are, 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 are treating me, it just seems pretty understandable. After all, my circumstances are, are pretty rotten. I did get the, the short end of the stick. Anyone for, with half a brain can see that. And yet, when we look at the Bible, and we look at what the Bible has to say about complaining, and what the Bible has to say about grumbling, we see a completely different picture. Old Testament tells us, or really focuses on one specific group of people when it talks about grumbling and complaining. I think there's this word grumbling is used seven times in the Old Testament. Don't quote me on that. But six of the seven times is referred to one group of people. And that's the Exodus generation. That's the group of people that the Israelites that God led out of slavery in Egypt brings them into the wilderness. And how do they respond to this great salvation, this freedom from slavery that God has given to them? They just... They complain. They complain and they complain and they complain and they complain. They complain because they don't have any water. They complain because they don't have any food. God provides food and they complain it's because of the wrong kind of food. They ask for meat instead. God provides meat for them. They complain because they have too much meat. They complain because Moses and Aaron are the ones in charge and not them. They complain that God is asking them to go into the promised land when they see what the promised land is actually like. They complain over and over and over. And what is God's response? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, we must not grumble as some of the Exodus generation did and were destroyed by the destroyer. God takes complaining, he takes grumbling very seriously. His response to it is judgment. He takes it very seriously because when we complain about our circumstances, when we are complaining 
about what is going on in our lives, what we're actually doing is not just complaining about those circumstances, we're also complaining about the one who is in charge of our circumstances. We're complaining about God, about how he, live, or how he is leading and, and guiding and directing our lives. So I'll give you an example. If I decide what we're going to have for supper and my kids complain about it, and they just they can't stand what I decide to make, we'll say chicken stir-fry, uh, I don't know, um, and, and they just are, are complaining, uh, we don't like this food, we don't like this, we don't like this. They're prim- yes, they're complaining about what, I'm, what, what we're having for dinner, but they're primarily complaining about my decision to have that for dinner. They're complaining about their circumstances, but they're primarily complaining about the one who is in charge of their circumstances. So God takes complaining very seriously because it is saying to God, hey, you know what, you really screwed this up. And if I was in charge, I would have done a whole lot better than you would have. No wonder God despises complaining and grumbling. No wonder it, it's offensive to God and to his character. It's a, it's a rebellion against him, saying, God, I know you are in charge, but I can do it better than you can. And you really screwed this one up. So of course, Paul says, do all things without grumbling, do all things without disputing. Because when we when we pause and not just look at our circumstances, but we also look at, at all that God has done for us. When we think about what he's done for us in Jesus, and when we think about the, the way that he continuously, providentially cares for us each and every day, gives us new breath every moment, we have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be thankful for. 15 years ago, uh, roughly 15 years ago, um, I, was, I listened, was at a conference and heard a pastor say something that really has stuck with me ever since then. He, he's just being very candid, and he said, you know what? I, I haven't seen everything from God that I wanted in my life. My life has been filled with disappointment. My life has been filled with unanswered prayer, at least unanswered in the way that I have wanted it to be answered. I've asked God for certain things, and he has seen fit not to answer. And yet, I've seen enough in my life so that if even if God didn't give me anything else ever again, I would still have enough to thank him for for all of eternity. And, and in the shadow of the cross, all of our complaints should fade away because of what God has already done for us. Yes, life is filled with massive disappointments. It's filled with massive disappointments. There's nothing wrong with recognizing that, with acknowledging that. That's just part of being human. And yet there's a massive gap between saying, God, this didn't go the way that I wanted it to, and yet I will still continue to trust in you, and saying, you know what, God, this didn't go the way that I wanted it to, and I really think that you messed this up, and nothing in my life is going right because of you. There's a difference between dis- disappointment and vocalizing that disappointment with God and then actually complaining with or to God. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. But just in case uh, offending God <laughs> isn't a- enough of a motivation here, he actually gives us another reason, verse 15. Verse 15, he he says, In the midst of a dark and depraved generation, you will shine like stars. If you don't complain, 
if you don't grumble, if, if you're not arguing with other people, if you do that in the midst of a generation, in the midst of a culture, that that's the air that they breathe, then you are going to shine like stars. That everyone is going to notice how you are living your life. This is all about your testimony, your witness. It really hinges on whether you are someone who complains or not. I've seen people who are professing Christians absolutely berate customer service representatives because of something that happened to them or, or something that's frustrating them and their testimony absolutely destroyed. I've seen other people professing Christians, they apparently think that God doesn't check social media because of the awful things that they've said about their coworkers and their neighbors, their families, their friends. And, and, and I'll be honest, even as a pastor, if that's the Christian life, I'm not all that interested. So imagine... What an unbeliever who's already opposed to the gospel, already has reasons why they don't want to believe, thinks when they see that type of mindset. So what do we do rather than complain? Well, Paul tells us in verse 16. He says to hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the gospel. Cling to the gospel. Cling to the message of what Jesus has done for us. If we dwell on the message of the gospel, of all that Christ has done for us, it will be increasingly difficult for us to complain about our circumstances. If we are so focused on what Jesus has done for us, then our circumstances will begin to fade away. John Newton, uh, author of, of Amazing Grace, the hymn Amazing Grace, um, he, he gives this illustration that really puts this in perspective of, of our circumstances now with what awaits us because of what Christ has done for us. He says this, Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he get to the, got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. It's a loss of perspective of what awaits him. Not his current circumstances, but what awaits him when he finally comes home. And when we dwell on the word of God, this word of life, we gain that exact same perspective. That's honestly the same sort of perspective we see from the Apostle Paul. No matter the challenges that are facing the Apostle Paul, Paul is so focused on this day of Christ. And so instead of complaining he just says, I'm just going to focus on the gospel. I'm going to focus on, on what God is doing through the gospel. Francis Chan, a former pastor in, in um, the Los Angeles area, he said this, live a life that demands an explanation. Live a life that demands an explanation. I, I, really, I really appreciate that phrase because it's all about your witness and your testimony. It's really what Paul is saying here in 14 through 16, this idea of shining like stars in the midst of a broken world. And what a better place, there's not a better place to, to, to start living a life that demands an explanation than by refusing to complain, by refusing to grumble, even when our circumstances are hard and challenging. And that's what this second section is, is trying to make clear to, to us. Obedience starts with the death of grumbling. Obedience starts with the death of grumbling. We can't be an obedient Christian we can't be working out our salvation with fear and trembling if we are also at the same time a consistent complainer. The two things are absolutely incompatible. 
And so if we are to walk the path of obedience, the striving after obedience to be more and more like Jesus, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, remember, this is done for God's glory and pleasure, then we have to start by putting grumbling to death. The passage just closes real briefly, kind of an addendum to this passage. Paul actually looks at his own life and says, hey, here's an example of this. And he gives us an alternative to grumbling and to complaining. And it's simply this. Obedience means rejoicing, not grumbling. Obedience means rejoicing, not grumbling. Verse 17. Even if I am poured, or even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here in, in just these two short verses, Paul mentions rejoicing four times. This, word, this phrase, I am glad, is, it's also can be translated, I, I am rejoicing, I rejoice. And Paul is saying, hey, you know what? Even though my circumstances are, are, are bad, I'm, I'm in a Roman prison cell right now. I have no idea of when I'm going to get out. I had, I had plans for my life. I was hoping to go to Spain where I could share the gospel with other people, and yet that's not what God's plan was. And, and I'm, even though I've dealt with my disappointment, I continue to rest in what God is doing in my life. I look at my life, and even though the circumstances aren't ideal, I can see how God is at work. I am trusting that God is still in charge and sovereign over my life. And I would even die, that's what this, uh, this language of, of a sacrificial offering He says, I would even die for you, for the gospel, if it meant that things would improve for you, that that you would continue to grow in your faith. And I rejoice at that opportunity. And I want you to rejoice as well. So won't you just join me in rejoicing? No matter our circumstances, that you would join me in rejoicing? Don't you just love Paul's heart? Paul's such a pastor. Paul, or we began our time together by this quote from Robert Murray McShane about the greatest need for a congregation is their pastor's personal holiness. That's what we see from Paul. Paul's someone who, he's an example of what they should be living like, of this heart posture that they should pursue, this, this uh, no matter what my circumstances are, I am going to become more and more like Jesus. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to grumble. Instead, I am going to rejoice. And if we were to boil down this passage into just like one simple phrase, I think it would be something along those lines. Obedience? Well, obedience starts with your heart's attitude about your circumstances. Before we get to our actions, obedience starts with our heart's attitude about the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Listen, I don't, I don't know the specifics of your circumstances. Maybe some of you are going through truly awful seasons of life, and it, it might not be possible for you to, to not be disappointed in this season. And yet, also at the same time, might it be possible to not let your heart's attitude be controlled by those circumstances? You can still be disappointed, that's fine. But instead of letting your heart's attitude be controlled by those circumstances and complaining... Instead, be controlled by the one who is in charge of those circumstances. I think this passage is 
uh, for all of us to some degree or another, is it's a call to repentance. It's, I, I look at my own life. I can identify times just this past week, I, I, yesterday, where I complained. Where I just had this grumbling heart. And, and yeah, I was someone, I'm someone who can justify it pretty easily. Saying, well, I'm just venting. Or, well, it's true. I mean, if you knew that person, you'd say the exact same thing. I wasn't pointing at anyone over there, just so you know. That's the danger of talking, about, talking with your hands. Oh, um, <laughs> just saying, well, it's true. But at its core, at its, its rotten core, it's just grumbling. It's complaining. And if that's you this morning, can, you just, can we just all own that? Can we, can we recognize that in our lives? In spite of, in spite of our weak uh, justifications of our sin, to just recognize that that's exactly what it is. It's, it's sin. It's sin that Jesus had to go to the cross to, to pay for. It's sin that separates us from God. It, it's sin that it's really just a lacking of, of confidence, of trust in, in God's goodness that says, hey, you know what? I don't really think that you actually have my best interests in mind, that I actually think that, you know what, God, I, I, I know better than you in this situation. And then from that place of repentance, saying, you know what, I just recognize that, God, I am sorry, forgive me, help me to not be someone who complains, that we would go from that place, and, and from there, we would, we would transform our grumbling and our complaining into rejoicing. And listen, if there are certain avenues for you in your life that, that just cause you to complain, or, or a place where you complain a lot, social media, a group of friends, a text thread, whatever the case may be, cut it out of your life. That's what it looks like to, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to do in this passage. It's to find ways to, to stop complaining, to stop grumbling, and begin to Rejoice to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Listen, I, I know that we're not going to be perfect. We still have bad days. God knows that too. So let's just get rid of, of that mistaken view. This mistaken view that, that says that, that God only is satisfied when we reach perfection. God delights in progress, not just perfection. I'll give you an example. Uh, if you were to go look at my office, there's a bulletin board um, on the wall, and I think for the first year and a half or so that, that I was in this office, um, it was blank. I'm not a teacher. I don't know what to do with bulletin boards. They just sat there. And then about um, six months, eight months or so, eh, a year ago, uh, Silas, my, my four-year-old at the time, now five-year-old, he, he drew a picture of me, and, and it was for me, and he said, hey, Dad, I drew this for you. And um, my family's not a group of artists by any stretch of the imagination, and this picture showed that. It's, it's not going to win any sort of awards. And yet I love it. And I posted it on that bulletin board, and now that bulletin board is, is filled with, with other pictures from, from Silas and from Mara, our daughter, and um, every single time they give me a, a new one, I, I look at it and I, I smile and I, I put it up there. And then as I'm walking out, I, I see those and, and I smile because they're not perfect, but I love them. 
<laughs> just a couple weeks ago, Silas, he, he was in my office, and, and he saw that first drawing. He said, Dad, who drew that? With that tone, Dad, who drew that? And I said, well, you did, Silas. He said, wow, I was really bad at drawing. And objectively, you know, he's, he's, he's not wrong. It's, it's not great, but I love it, and it makes me smile. It's because I love them, and I love the progress that they're making, and I love that they're doing it for me. And if I feel that way about artwork, How do you think God feels about our pursuit of holiness? Not perfect. Still flawed. Not going to win any awards. But progress. Let us be a people who strive for obedience. And that obedience starts with a heart's attitude that doesn't look at our circumstances and complains, but rejoices because Jesus is the one who reigns and is in charge. Let's pray. Father, I, I just want to pause and ask for your forgiveness. for the times where I have complained when I shouldn't have. Because of how much you've given me in the gospel. Forgive me for rejecting your lordship, for not thinking that you know what's best or have what's best in mind for me. Thank you for mercy, God. Help us to be a people who have the right perspective on life that look to Jesus and not our circumstances. And from that place that we would be a people of rejoicing, not of grumbling. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.